Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation is so brewing, amazed that the focus remains the focal focal point of my team. Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And no truer statement has ever been made when it comes to this week's guest, Allie Groft. Allie is the literally the definition of why the Rambling Runner podcast was created in the first place. This woman can do it all. She has just gotten her BQ, which is always a fantastic achievement for anybody. And yet, at the same time, she's an elementary school teacher, she's a mom, she's a wife, and she balances a ton of stuff. And in this episode, we touch on two things. So the first half, we talk a lot about just you know connecting with kids, being able to juggle, um, being a parent and doing the running stuff. And then I start quizzing her just how she's able to deal with. I shouldn't say deal with. I guess more like just living life in a way that's very positive and optimistic when you know, you're a parent of young kids. It can be really frustrating a lot of the times, especially for someone like her who, you know, works with young kids all day and comes back home and then deals with more young kids and you really don't get a break. So we talk a lot about mindset and what she does to put herself in a positive mindset and also how she juggles running. And then we just get really into the running, dive into the specifics because this woman has gotten really, really good and it's a testament not only to her talent, but all the hard work that she puts in. So I could not Wait to get Ali on the episode, as you'll hear. This was a long time coming. A lot of people have recommended her, and I think you'll see why. So here's my episode with Ali Groft. Ali, welcome to the Rambling Runner podcast. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for coming on the show, first of all. Uh, secondly, man, I'm catching you at a pretty busy time. You just ran the Erie Marathon. In addition, you're a first grade teacher. School just started up. Shoot, man, what a busy time of the year for you, I must say. Yeah, well, it's my pleasure to be on the show. Um, I have followed you for such a long time. And um, no matter if I'm busy or not, I like to kind of immerse myself in all this good stuff that's going on in the running community. Well, you're a big part of it. That's for sure. And I'll <laughs> tell you what, and we'll get into some of this because I, I often find myself re-reading some of the things that you write down because I think you, you, I wouldn't say blog, but you kind of use Instagram as kind of a blog on occasion where you kind of express yourself in a way and then extrapolate certain ideas and things that are coming up in your life and, you know, bring up kind of universal points for people to consider. Um, and I find them very poignant and I really enjoy reading a lot of the things that you've written in the past. So with that being said, you know, Obviously, you live a very busy life. You're your first grade teacher. You got four kids. You're, you're also, you know, you have big running goals. You have doing a lot of, lot of crazy stuff. I guess first things first, you come across as a very energetic and optimistic person. How much of that is nature or how much of that is nurture? Well, <laughs> I, I am a busy person. I will agree with that statement. Um, I guess for me, mediocrity is just not a, a, an option. I like to, um, I like to be a positive person and I like to have big goals. And I feel like other people should be that way. <laughs> so maybe I'm, uh, encouraging them to, um, strive just to be a better person every day. 
And having big goals, is that something that has always been a part of your life or is that something that's come um, become a part of your life as you've matured? Uh, I think it's grown as I've gotten older. Um, it, it was never more important than it has been now. Um, just, you know, raising four little ones, teaching first graders. My husband's also a teacher. So we kind of are always involved with the youth. And, um, you know, for us, we think it's important that people have something to strive for and um, ourselves included. And if we're going to preach to be better every day, then we should also be doing it ourselves. And that's a hard thing to do, right? I mean, even, get, even keeping <laughs> the status quo every day requires a significant effort, especially when you have a lot going on. So when you say, you know, improving every day and getting better every day, I know that you, um, as you mentioned, you're very goal oriented in a sense. So what are things that in the past, you know, maybe in the in the short term, not short term, but in, in the recent past, I should say, are things that you've really stro you know, strove to be better at and improve upon? Well, um, you know, athletically speaking, I, I've been running for several years. Um, you know, I've played field hockey when I was in high school and then continued into college. But I started doing more of the distance running like mo most people with 5Ks, 10Ks and things like that. And, you know, you get the fever to do a little bit more each time. So, um, you know, I eventually started half marathons and then going into the marathon training. And I believe a lot of that competitive nature that I always had with athletics kind of carried on to this running journey that I'm on. Um with the respect that, you know, if my husband did something, then I also had to do it too. You know, like we kind of battle back and forth, but, um, in the short term, I just, it, my biggest thing was I had it in my mind that I was going to Boston. And, um, you know, if you tell yourself, if you kind of call your shot and tell yourself that I'm going there and you're going to find a way to get there. And that's the mindset that I have right now. And that is something that you've been so close to in the past. And <laughs> you just ran, you know, I'm, you know, we'll talk about the race that you just ran, but, you know, we'll, we'll give up the time now. You ran a 329.59, uh, just under the 330 mark. You must have been, first of all, for, before we get into just like, you know, what went into that and talking about Boston, did, what was the, what was the chip time versus gun time scenario for you? Like when you were coming to the finish line, did you know that you were about to break 3.30 on the chip time? Or what, what was it like for you coming down that final straight? So um, this is my second year running Erie. Um, last year I ran. And as a 35-year-old last year, I knew I needed a um, 3.40 as of last year. And I ran a 3.35 and some change. Um, ended up missing the Boston qualifying mark. Um, I, I qualified, but I missed their time cut off by 16 seconds. So um, that wasn't exactly um, favorable in my condition or in my, in my opinion, I should say. But um, this year, I just wanted to smash through it. And they had cut the time down by five minutes. So I knew I had to break through that barrier and run my best race ever. But um, I just wanted to leave no doubt. I wanted to let it all out there. and. I went out and had an awesome first half. Um, 
second half went into the second half and it got to about mile 20 and I could feel that, you know, the fatigue was setting in, but I just had to keep pressing on. Um, my husband was actually on course and he just kept giving me the positive feedback, but, um, I didn't know that I had it until the last mile when he said, you have 11 minutes to get there and you're going to be, you're going to meet me there under three 30. I know you will. And he left. And, um, I rounded, uh, the last hard hairpin turn that was in the race and saw that the three thirty pacer was well behind me and I knew I had it. So, uh, it was a, it was a great feeling to cross that line. <laughs> I can imagine. So you, you, you had, as you mentioned in the past, you had four BQ, this is your fourth BQ with that set, or this is your fourth or fifth. This would be, so technically speaking, I have Boston qualified all four times that I have ran a marathon. I ran two um, at the 3.37.10, exactly. Don't ask me how I was able to do something (laughs) like that. Um, I can't even imagine why that number came up exactly the same time, both both first marathons. But um, uh, then I improved my time in Erie the third time I ran. And this time, uh, obviously ended up with a PR, which I'm excited about. But, um, each of those times I was under the qualifying standard. I just missed it with it being such a popular race. So let's talk about that finish line feeling when you have, you know, you, you set this, you set these goals to get to Boston, right? And this is something that I know a lot of people have gone through where you have the, that BQ time versus the registration time, which is one of them is this certainty, is set in stone. You know it throughout your training. And the other one is so subjective, you have no idea until like you, know, you literally register for the race and then you, you, and you figure it out. And when you had, say last year, when you finished Erie, you came in, how much certainty did you have and how much exultation was there regarding your time versus any kind of hesitation about, you know, the ability to actually run Boston for the registration time? Um, you know, <laughs> it, it is to me and to most others, it's like the Super Bowl of running. Um, I look at it with such prestige and, and I know that, you know, you don't just waltz into Boston. So, um, it is a lofty goal to have. And I, and I've said to myself, I will be there. I just didn't know how long it would take me. Um, and I think there is power and purpose in patience. And I, you know, I may have been able to just qualify those first times, but there's a reason that I didn't get in. And it may have taken this fourth cycle to realize that reason. And it's that you have to believe that you can do it. You have to realize that you do belong there. Um, I didn't want to just be there because I, you know, fell upon this time that I ran it in. Um, I wanted to be there and know that I belonged amongst those people that I was standing shoulder to shoulder with. And you sp- You've written about how this marathon cycle for you was a transformation. And that was that was the word that you would use. And I think you were referring to, to the mental side of things. So let's talk about exactly the transformation that has gone on over the last three or four months for you before we kind of talk about, you know, how you approached it as a family. 
So um, I refer to this this cycle as as one to remember because um, I I've always been, and you touched on me being a positive person. It's just been in my nature, but um, I really wanted to make a conscious effort this summer to kind of immerse myself in some reading and some um, self-guidance with just, you know, being grateful. Yeah, we we have we're given all these things as people here on earth that like we just take for granted every day. So um I I made it a daily practice to read things that were ma- that made me feel better. Um and I don't want to say feel better, but look at things in a different perspective. Um I you know, started a gratitude log and I would write down 10 things every day that I found, you know, that I could be grateful for and feel blessed about. And a lot of times running was in there and the clarity that I got from those morning runs of just being one with the workout and, you know, pushing myself. Um, it was really, really helpful and keeping the rest of my life in perspective. So as you said, I'm, I'm busy. I have five people um, at my house besides me and four of them are, you know, seven and under. So um, to, to me, I always want to be at my best so that I can handle situations that arise at our house and, and deal with different things. So the running gives me clarity to deal with the rest of the day. <laughs> And um, that transformation was really powerful. It helped me, you know, talk to my spouse in a different way and, and um, you know, talk to my children and guide them in, in their own way. And uh, it really helps the whole family dynamic to just have a clear purpose in every day. And running gave me that in the mornings. What you're talking about right now is exactly something that I struggle with on a daily basis. So if you don't mind, I'd love to talk, you know, to, to drill down into it, not only for the listener's perspective, but for my own as well, because you're doing amazing work. <laughs> and um, not just from a running perspective, but just, you know, holistically speaking. So if you could just take us back to what, you know, what kind of precipitated your feelings for a need for transformation? Like how were you acting or feeling or what was the environment or culture within your house that you felt like changing your perspective would help to alter or change in some way? So, you know, the older my children get, um, and, and for all of us, but children especially, like the older they got and get in this, you know, in this world, they, um, you know, they encounter more. and. Um, you know, they need to learn how to deal with that. And I think if we are as adults and parents, um, more open with them about ways to problem solve and ways to do things in life that are more sensible rather than using our hands or using, you know, nasty tone in our voice or anything like that. Um, I think that they better understand how to approach people. And with that being said, there wasn't anything in particular that really pushed me to do this. I just am constantly surrounded by little people (laughs) in my world. And, um, you know, I want to be a positive light to them, but I also want to 
um, be that for my spouse and my parents and my friends. And I just think that we need more of that in general. Um, social media is an awesome, awesome thing, but it can be an area where, you know, people can downplay something that someone else's highlight. And I want people to feel good about what they're out there doing. Um, if I had to kind of pinpoint one thing this summer that was a real cha game changer, um, it is that my husband ran in March. He ran a marathon and he broke three hours. He ran it in 259. Jeez Louise. He's got, he's got to be on the show, too. <laughs> I've had so many people say, like, you got to have the graphs on together. I'm like, I don't know. I don't think I'm a good enough interviewer to do two people at one time. But he, oh, like wow. you, he, he keeps getting requested as well. Oh, really? Well, that I, I will definitely share that with him. He'll make him feel great. Um, he he went through a tough season this summer. He uh, qualified for Boston with that amazing time and then was delivered the news that he would have to have a spinal fusion. So um, he actually underwent having his spine fused from L3, 4 to 5. And it was a tough season for him because there I was grinding away, you know, trying to get better and he's sidelined. So for me, I became the leader in our house and I became the cheerleader as well. And the only way to uphold a family like that is to have somebody take the reins. And it was me this summer. So, um, you know, this was his time to just kind of taken all that was being thrown at him. And it was also an eye opener for me that if I could be that positive light for him, and if I could be there for my children, that they would all have that, um, that peace in their day that was the rock and the structure and the one that could, you know, give them that oomph to get through the hard stuff. And you know, we we read the same books and we talked in the evenings about things that we were grateful for. And we talked about the silver lining in each day. And as corny as it sounds, it really does work. And the more you put your focus on something like that, the more you find. OK, so this is something that I've thought about for a while because I, I've, re, I've read some of the books that I know that you have read. I know that you've, you've, you've perused not perused, but you've, you've kind of dived into John, some of John Gordon's books, who some of the people who are listening to this might not be aware of when you talk about that in a second. Um, and I'd love to hear some of the other books that you're reading. But it's, it's interesting because, as you mentioned, you have four kids, seven and under. And I guess because you have – there's one right now, coughing in the background. Um, so when you have – and I guess given your background as a first-grade teacher, you're probably well aware of what they're able to do and not able to do cognitively speaking. So what was it like for you to try to implement those sorts of practices with, with, as you put it, like little people who are, who obviously, you know, are still growing and maturing and not maybe understanding things on certain levels? Like, what was it like to, to institute that sort of daily or, you know, semi-daily practice, um, which even adults can find challenging in a way? Um, I think the easiest way for them to understand it was to see it put in practice. So uh, what's amazing about kids is that they want to be like the rest of us. If you're giving them an example or a model, they want to be like you. And that is the biggest 
um, thing that you can go after and use when teaching them certain ways to, to behave or to look at life. Um, you know, my kids saw me writing in a journal and they saw me reading and they came up to me. Uh, we were in the store the one day and they, one of them said, can I get this notebook? And I said, well, what are you going to do with that? I want to write down the stuff I'm grateful for, you know, just like you. And I hadn't pushed it on them or anything like that. It's just, um, you know, they're watching how we behave. And I feel like if we're, you know, living our best life, then they're going to try to do the same for themselves. So um, it's not something that I hound on, but I, I do I do preach a lot about kindness. I feel like if there's anything you can be, it's be kind in all that you do. So um, I teach them that, but I also want them to understand that there's going to be adversity in life and you need to be able to be prepared for that. So we talk a lot about, you know, something hard is coming and it's okay that you recognize that it's hard to do, you know, get a shot or a test at school but on the other side of that, you're going to be better. So um, with all that I do, I try to relate it to things that they can make sense of. You know, I talk to them about if you're if you're facing, you know, this at school, realize that I'm doing the same thing with a race. And on the other side of this, we are both going to be better. So uh, that's how I sort of approach things with my own children. And then, of course, I let it carry over into my classroom because I just try to treat those guys like they'd be my own. So you mentioned just now about shots. And that reminds <laughs> me of, a, of, a, of a, one of your posts because you talked about, you know, how, you know this was a, definitely like a how are we raising our kids type post. And I thought it was really interesting. So let's let's go through the allergy shot story because I thought that was a really good one, and it really <laughs> stuck in my head um, as I was preparing for today because I, you know, I, that was one of the ones that I reread a couple times because I really did like your perspective on it. So um, over the summer, we had a couple different times where our triplets—that's uh, why we have so many under the age of seven. <laughs> when three of them come at once, you get a lot of kids. <laughs> so um, we have. <laughs> triplets who are five years old and then um, an older daughter. She's seven. And the triplets had different um, allergic reactions over the summer. So um, we were trying to figure out what, what was going on with them. And long story short, with that, we decided to get them tested for different allergies uh, related to food. And in going in there to the lab, I knew that, you know, they would feed off of one another and watching one another have to get a shot can be pretty scary. So I, I looked at it in the sense that, you know, if that was me and I had to walk into something like that, I would want to know what's going to happen. And I'd want to know that it's going to be something that I can do. So I, I, talk, I just had a conversation with them and I said, listen, it's not going to be your favorite thing to do. And it is something hard that you have to face. But on the other side of this, you're going to realize that it's not so bad. And, you know, you're able to get through tough things so that they weren't scared to walk in there. They were prepared rather than being afraid of what was going to happen. So they all went in, two of them with tear-filled eyes sat down and did what they needed to do. And the third one waltzed right up and was like, let's do this. And he's like, I'm not scared. <laughs> and so, you know, that's kind of generally his nature, but um, 
I don't know if it was confidence that he had in himself or the fact that he watched his brothers and sisters do it, but they all handled it so well. And after getting the shots done, they wanted to sort of brag to their grandmother. So um, she works at an allergy office and she said, you wouldn't believe how basically diabolical or kids get when they, when they get in there and have to just take a shot and their parents just, you know, kind of ooh and awe over that. And none of them get really real with their kids and just say, you know, it's just tough, but you'll be, you're better for getting it done. So that's the approach I kind of take with my guys with that. Yeah. And and you're, it's a very thoughtful way that you're having these conversations with your kids. You know, intellectually, it it completely makes sense. 100%. And I'm sitting here like, you know, I don't think I'm doing any of this at a high level, but I can see <laughs> how other people would, and I can see the, you know, the uh, the value in doing so. And then I reflect back on like, I feel like you know, so I have a seven year old and a five year old. My wife and I, I should say, have a seven year old and a five year old, seven year old and a four year old. And I feel like getting to those introspective moments, not necessarily with like the shot story, but the one that we talked about before about you know, being grateful and, you know, you thinking about your day and, and, and all of those sorts of things, really setting time to take a heart, to take a, a critical look at how things are going and trying to be thoughtful about how we process them. I feel like it's so interesting because I look at those moments and I think to myself, that's great. And then I think back to my own day and I feel like it's all just like, go, 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 like just one thing leading to the next thing all part of like some sort of like giant routine that you try to keep going. And then, you know, like for me, like coming home from work, like from five o'clock to seven 30, like I know how that day should go. And if we're like five minutes behind and ever anything, I'm kind of like on edge about it. Cause I know it's just going to push things back. So how do you manage that? You know, no, you have, you have two more kids that I have. So how do you manage that? Go, go, go feeling um, with that, with that ideal that you want to get to from an introspective and trying to be thoughtful about how your kids are processing the things around them. So I don't want you to look at me as, as a saint because I, I'm not always, <laughs> I'm not always on top of my game like that. I don't think any of us could ever be, um, you know, that perfection that it, we're kind of looking at is subjective, but I, um, I, we definitely are go, go, go. I think about our days after school, uh, when, when my children are done, they actually go to the same school that I teach at. So they end up in my classroom at the end of the day. And as I'm trying to write notes home to parents and, um, wrap up my day, uh, and head out of the building there, you know, rightfully so there'll be things you drop in water bottles and, and, playing around with the stuff in my classroom that needs to be cleaned up. And we talk every day about how, you know, can we not do that kind of thing? But um, I have that same stuff that you guys are dealing with. Trust me. Uh, But what um, our day looks like is almost like an assembly line to some some extent, because we're doing everything times four. And um, it has always been that way. So it's something I'm kind of used to at this point. But you just have to remember that other people are praying for the busy that we have, and they may never get it. So I try not to look at it as something that is a bad thing in life. 
if that makes sense. <laughs> Absolutely. And you talked about, uh, in, uh, not just in this show, but also you've written about this, is you know your your love of reading and, and you know taking things from books and trying to implement it in your own life. So, what books have you read um, that have really made an impression on you and that you try to try to you know reflect on? So, um, you mentioned John Gordon. Um, a friend of mine asked me to read the Energy Bus. Uh, I had a her child in class, and we became very good friends. Um, she knew that I really promoted kindness and um, wanted to just reach out to people to let them know that positivity is, you know, so key in how your day unfolds. So the energy bus was a great one by John Gordon. I also um, read the positive dog, which is kind of a little bit of a spoof off of that book. Um, Rachel Hollis, uh, her two books, Girl, Wash Your Face and Girl, Stop Apologizing are very powerful for the female audience. And um, right now on my list of things to read, I have Trent Shelton, uh, The Greatest You. So there are just a couple different ones that I'm reading where, it, you know, it, they're just telling you that life is going to be hard at times and you're going to have your highs and your lows. Um, the way that you face each day is going to be the difference in how your life plays out. Um, I think a lot of people look at Darren and I and they see this perfect family. And as I mentioned, I think perfection sort of subjective when you look at that. Our life has little to do with luck and a lot to do with the, the positive nature that we have. Um, you know, if if you're focused on the good and you're focused on the lessons that can be learned and the opportunities rather than the challenges and the complaints, then you're going to see the good a lot more than you'll see the bad. All right. So I think the key with positivity is basically being able to utilize it when things aren't going well, right? I mean, it's easy to be positive when things are going well. That's not positivity. That's just kind of like going with the flow of positive right. things that are happening in your life. So. Right. You know, expressing and feeling positivity when things are less than ideal or maybe even far worse than that. What are what are the ways in which you kind of can snap yourself into that mindset? Because, you know, we all have frustrations in life and there's all there's gonna be plenty of moments where, you know, like you mentioned, like you're writing notes home to your to your your parents uh, for, for the, you know, for your class and your kids, you know, might be doing something in the classroom, which makes it, you know, very counterproductive for you personally, or you're trying to get out the door in the morning or, you know, kids aren't going to bed or maybe even far worse scenarios than that, any of those things. So what are the things that you do try to snap into that mentality when it's not necessarily, um, you know, uh, the way you, you would be if you just kind of went with the flow of how the day is going? <laughs> so um you know sometimes the search is hard is easier than and, than others but to find that positive place but a lot of times i try to find the reason for why i'm not um feeling positive or maybe even my children so if you know if things are going south quickly there's got to be a reason why it, maybe it's fatigue maybe it is you know um misunderstanding so I try to find the root of why things aren't going well and nip that so that we can get on the positive swing of things. 
So, you know, um, if you're dealing with a situation after school, like I mentioned, you know, with some of mine, I know they're tired. They just went through six to seven hours of following directions and um, listening. And I'm getting all these positive reports from their teachers. So I'm very thrilled that they're holding it together for someone else. And then you have to realize that when they get to you, (laughs) you're their most comfortable person. So that's probably why the wheels are falling off. And if you just understand that, um, it helps to, you know, avoid the triggers that would cause, you know, things going south, like I mentioned. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I think we've, I think all parents have been there where they're like, how come you don't act that way at home? Right? Like, it's like, you get these positive, you know, it's like we've had, you know, with our kids, you like, you know, these positive reports from school and you're delighted, right? Like, you're like, they yes. haven't all been positive. I'm not going to act like they have been. But when you do get those, when you do get positive reports, you sit there, you're like, oh, thank goodness. It turns out we're not actually messing this up, you know, despite, <laughs> despite our fears, they seem to be learning something. Um, yeah, you earned your gold star that day. Yeah. To to a point, but then you also have that 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 same feeling of like, and yet, you know, at five fifteen p.m., I don't see them act that way. <laughs> so what is the oh, disconnect here? I totally here? understand. Yes, I totally understand. And as a teacher, I'm on the opposite side of that when I'm telling parents about how angelic their students are and how well they behave, and they stop and look and they say, are we talking about the same kid? (laughs) So um, I have been on the receiving end of that as well. And, um, you know, I'm just grateful that they're behaving when I'm not in place and I'm not able to keep them under my thumb. And that to me, I think is more important than when you are side by side with your little ones. Yeah, and I, I appreciate you diving into this because, you know, and we're going to talk about running in a second, but I feel like this is something that affects so many people, um, just, you know, how to balance these sorts of issues. And it seems like, you know, especially not only because you have four kids, um, but you're a thoughtful person, but also given your uh, elementary education training, that you're also positively predisposed to handling these situations in a certain way. I know this personally with my wife is as long-time listeners will know this, my wife is an elementary school teacher as well. And, you know, so, so she can be really helpful for me expressing like, hey, like, here's another way of doing that. Or here's what they're actually capable of doing. And you're asking them to do too much. And sometimes I'm right. you know, a good listener. Sometimes I'm, you know, like, hey, let me do it my way type, type approach to it, depending on, <laughs> you know, our own little, our own little uh, frustrations that day. But so I think you do provide a really interesting uh, background and approach. And I guess last thing before we get into the running is you use a lot of language here, which would indicate that um, living a faith-based life from a religious perspective is something that is meaningful to you. Is that indeed the case? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that faith has a lot to do with, you know, being positive. You have to have hope and you have to have faith that things will work out or things are going to be better um, in, in the long run if you're dealing with adversity. And if you don't have that underlying um, foundation of what you believe is to be the best life and, you know, perfection at the end of all of this, then 
where is your purpose? And so um, I do, I do regularly attend church and I feel like, you know, those sermons are genuinely meant for us to hear and, and take from and then apply in our lives. And part of that is maybe reiterating it in our posts and, and talking about it out loud so that can just spread the good word. I mean, it's called that for a reason. <laughs> yeah, no, that that's a great point. And I know that oftentimes for certain people, like, you know, th- there are certain parts of faith and religion that can be a little bit more toxic or than others, whereas opposed to there are some universal themes for anybody of any, you know, any background where like we're all trying to live our best life and impact the people in a positive way who are around us and who are already in or part of our lives. And I can see how that that sort of, you know, trying to embrace those sorts of ideals while also understanding and being, you know, giving ourselves grace within our own imperfection structure and things like that can be not only valuable to ourselves, but but others as well. And I, I think the, the, the faith journey, I think, can be a complicated one for a lot of people. Has it been complicated for you or is it something that you've always been able to embrace and, and really kind of you know, make make a big part of your life? Um, well, I was raised, you know, in a Christian family and, and it was, you know, something that we did practice, you know, going to church and, you know, praying and things like that. Um, I wouldn't say that we were, you know, over the top and the fact that, you know, we were always there every week, um, you know, and, and on Wednesdays or as well or anything like that. But it was more something that my parents instilled that, you know, you need to have faith in something that's greater than you and know that you are loved and, and always, um, you know, throughout your high school and college years, you, you kind of tend to lose that. Um, I find that to be something that many people come back and say that that was maybe where their faith was the weakest. And, you know, after you grow a little bit and, and, you know, get older and eventually start a family, you realize how important that is again. And, um, wasn't until about maybe two or th- two years ago now that we, our children approached us and talked about Sunday school. They went to um, a church preschool and they, they talked, they want, they initiated the conversation and we just knew it was right, the right time to, you know, really immerse them in, in that and give them the lessons as well. So it only benefits everybody in the family. And I'm really glad that we were able to get back into a regular routine of faith and whatever your religion is, I think you should practice it and, um, you know, use it for good. All right. So let's talk about your running schedule to make a, a sure. pretty drastic <laughs> and quick conversion to something else. You know, I, not that I, I love talking about religion and faith, and even though religion doesn't play a part in my life, um, you know, my, my wife does go to, does go to mass and things like that, but I can definitely see it's positive impact on a lot of people that I know. So I do appreciate where you're coming from. And it seems like it really has a positive impact on, on your family, which is obviously like a wonderful thing. And, um, and when you're talking about your livelihood, being a teacher, having a lot of kids, got a husband as well, who's also, you know, an active runner, hopefully, you know, he's able to, you know, he, as you mentioned, like he was running with you with Erie and hopefully his back is able to stabilize and he has a, you know, a long running future ahead of him. So, First of all, when do you do your runs? 
I run um, early in the morning. Um, as creepy as it is, it is the time of day that I do prefer to run. I feel like I um, do my best when I hit the ground running every day. So uh, my day starts typically in a training cycle around four o'clock in the morning. All right. So you so you wake up at four and then when are you out the door? Um, I'm usually out the door by like 445. Uh, we live in the country. Um, so I used to run uh, right from our house and do a lot of that. Um, had a couple run ins with different uh, people or animals. Um, so I uh, started to run in town very close to where I teach, uh, just so it's a little more well lit. But um, I, I I head into town and I run, you know, where no one's really awake and the world hasn't started turning yet, so to speak. So um, I will start and I try to be finished running around six o'clock in the morning. OK, so just so people know, so, so where where do you live? So I live in New Oxford, Pennsylvania, very close to Gettysburg. OK. All right. So I don't want to obviously like. I don't want to hear creepy people stories. Those are, you know, I don't want to indulge that necessarily, <laughs> but I do want to hear the animal stories. Like, what this? tell me, tell me some ones that stick out that it made you move your um, runs to a more, more, uh, more well-lit setting. So, well, generally speaking at 4 a.m., it's very dark. So regardless of how well-lit I am, um, the animals are not. So I have had many animals dart out in front of me. Um, I've actually had them follow me at times. Um, what are you, what, what have... animals? Like, what animals are following you? Because I've, I've so, run through a lot of, like, animal-dense areas, and usually they're scurrying away, and that's still freaky enough. I haven't had the following <laughs> before well um you know you have your general shadows that look like they could be anything but i did have uh, a buck one time run after me um definitely in rut so we'll put it that way um i don't know oh, if God. you didn't realize that i wasn't interested but it did make me run a little bit faster <laughs> hopefully this wasn't the day after speed work that's all i can ask that's all i can say <laughs> no <laughs> So I have had some unique situations, but um, I, I also, um, as many runners do, have my spots marked where there are dogs that come out and I have been on the receiving end of loose dogs. Um, so I try to make sure that I'm not um, running in an area where I'm going to cause myself to have to call my husband and wake him up out of bed <laughs> to come and rescue me. <laughs> Oh, that's for sure. Right, so, so what time do your kids usually wake up? Um, my husband typically wakes them up while I'm showering around um, 6.30, maybe. Oh, that's nice. That's nice. Because I know for a lot of parents, um, they get, you get the early risers, which can really mess with the morning running schedule. Because for me, I'm the same yeah. way. It's like, it's like I need to run before my kids wake up. So whether it's so weekday, it weekend, yeah. it doesn't matter. It wasn't always that easy. I did have my early risers. Um, my eldest daughter used to wake up at five o'clock in the morning and it was like, yes. whoa, sis, you know, like, let's <laughs> go back to bed because mom did not get that me time and she needs that. So um, 
Yeah, we 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 dealt with that when they were a little bit younger, but now that they play themselves out during the day, they definitely sleep a little bit for us in the morning. Okay, so when you're doing a day which is a little bit more intense, whether it's a long run or a workout day, do you have a routine that you like to do uh, before you you know hit hit the uh, you know, before you really get going, just to make sure that you're primed and ready to roll? In terms of the beginning of my run. Yeah, beginning your run or just like dynamic stretches or anything. I just say this as someone who, again, like you, I do. I, I head out the door between 430 and 445 as well. And I find that, you know, on the rare occasions where I can work out during the middle of the day on a workout day, as opposed to an easy run, it's like a huge difference in terms of the paces I'm able to hit. Um, not endurance necessarily, but just from a speed perspective versus my morning efforts. So what do you do in the morning to try to make sure that you're as, you know, as limber and ready to roll as you can be given the, the time constraint? Um, you know, I, I try to remember on those workout days that, you know, my body's trying to wake up just like anybody else's would. And you can't expect your peak performance at 4.45 in the morning. So um, I do um, do a lot of like hip, ex I do some hip exercises. I swing my legs, you know, back and forth, just like you remember from, you know, track workouts and things like that. Um, I, I try to limber up my hips the most and then I ease into the run, even if it is a track or a speed workout, I try to ease into that for the, at least that first mile. And then um, after that, it's game on. So um, I, try, I try not to delay the inevitable too long, especially um, if it's one that, you know, is a shorter one that's meant to be fast the whole time through. But I do have to, you know, realize that I am a 36 year old woman and I can't just jump right out of bed and run as fast as I possibly can each time. So um, I try to be somewhat gracious with my body. <laughs> it's, it's not like 15 year old field hockey player alley anymore. <laughs> no, I can't say that um, I have that same body. Um, you know, it's funny that you say that I I may not look like I used to at 15 years old anymore, but I definitely feel like I'm at my best. So, um, you know, that plays a big part, too. Well, you're killing it. I mean, it, it, it makes no I mean, <laughs> it's not a surprise to hear you say that, considering what you're able to do. I mean, shoot, you ran a 10K as a training workout at 706 pace. Which is like, you know, which is really, really good. And, you know, it's something that you obviously must have been really proud of because, you know, that that is really fast. And for a lot of people, you, you know, they look at what you're able to do. And I'm one of them, frankly, where you know, you're breaking 330 in a marathon is a huge achievement for a lot of people. And it's something that I know I haven't done. And I look at you and say, wow, like she was able to do it. Like, you know, shoot, maybe I'll be able to do it someday. So when you look at that and you look at what you're able to do in this cycle, I just want to touch on something that you talked about in one of your in one of your posts, which I thought was really well done. Again, I keep bragging about this for you. You're a really good writer. <laughs> and follow Holly Crops on, on Instagram. Um, so my point is that one of the things that you mentioned was, uh, I think this is a direct quote, that your body had been capable in the past of the time that you had run at Erie, again, 329.59. But that it, this time it was your, your mental ability that carried you through. What about 
your mentality or the mental side of things um, was improved during this training cycle as opposed to the three previous? So, um, you know, part of it is the unknown. When you waltz into that first marathon, you don't even know if you'll finish it. So, you know, that's an accomplishment in itself to do the 26.2. When you head into any marathon after that, now you're looking to just better what you did the previous time around. Um, in this situation, so many times I had heard, you know, the race begins at mile 20. And it is very true. I mean, your body can only hold so much uh, energy and, you know, withstand so much in a race like that, that you are bound to get tired. So my my mindset part of it was knowing that it is going to get hard and I need to embrace that. I need to embrace the fact that at some point in this race, this is not going to be about my legs and it's not going to be about what my body could do, but it's going to be about my head and my heart. And I need to keep in mind that if one foot goes in front of the other and I refuse to give up, then I will get to where I want to be and, uh, you know, um, finish this race in a respectable time. So I, um, I looked at this race as one where I would push limits and push limits in the sense that, you know, my previous races, my average time was like 817 or 814 per mile. And I knew I could do better than that because of my training runs that I did. I, I turned my long runs into workout long runs, which made a big difference. And I put a lot more speed in there. But when it came down to the end of the race and knowing that your body just really doesn't have anything left to give and then pushing it six more miles, um, you know, those are the moments where you you learn from and you realize just truly what you are capable of doing. And then to cross the finish line in a time that you didn't even really expect was just all of the more satisfying. So how did you approach your racing strategy in Erie this year in terms of the, the the minute per mile pace that you were looking for and how you were trying to segment, say, the first 20 miles compared to the final 6.2? So um, I knew I needed to add a little bit more speed into everything that I was doing. I essentially started all of this, um, you know, alongside my husband. He wanted to run a marathon. And then when he did, I thought, well... There's no way that only you're going to do one. So, um, you know, I jumped in. I love marital competition. I 100% (laughs) am on board with this idea. I feel like this might even be like its own separate podcast. It's like married couples competing against each other in some respects. And, you know, and I I don't always look at it as competition. We can turn literally anything into a competition, which it does make marriage fun. But um, I... I look at it as, you know, that is such an accomplishment to look at, you know, your parents and say, you know, for our four children, I have two parents that can say that they ran in Boston. And um, that was something to us that we thought was really impressive. And we're like, you know, that's a goal that we should shoot for. And so, um, you know, with him running them and me running them, we wanted 
we wanted to do our best. And there's really never a time where we look at one another and be like, yeah, we'll just go out and run that. So it's, it's always a best foot forward. So this time around, um, I actually had, you know, dear, uh, Jill Deering helped me out a little bit with just writing back and forth with her. Uh, for those that don't know her, she is one of the co-founders of the rabbit company. And I am one of the rad rabbits, um, in their program. And I talked to her about, and she's been on this podcast as well. And yes, so she's been on the podcast has. and she is yes. absolutely not only a fantastic businesswoman, but an unbelievable coach and athlete, I should say. Yes, she's amazing. And I, and I love um, to chat with her and write back and forth. And I'm just so, um, you know, thankful for the things that she bestows upon me with, you know, running and, and just her advice. Um, and she really, you know, talked to me about you know, adding more speed work in there and turning your long runs into workouts. And that seems so daunting when you look at like a 20 mile run and you're thinking to yourself, man, you know, I have to make it 20 miles and now you want me to push it for four <laughs> miles and then, you know, take a little bit off, and then you want me to go even faster after that. So, um, you know, I went after it and uh, to truth be told, it was so fun every time because it, it really makes you realize what you can do and it truly breaks up the workout. Um, I mean, if people are looking to change up their long run, I would really suggest that it does add the speed to your long run. And then it also just, um, you know, it, it takes away from that long min mundaneness of just the time on the feet. And um, we, my training partners and I, I had two um, fellow friends, so guy friends that would run with me, um, Tom and Brian, they, they were embraced it as well and they would do it with me and you know we really had a good time with it and i i really truly feel like that was a big part of what um or a big part of my success with Erie this time around was not only having like the the workout the long runs that included speed but having people to run with during those workouts I, I love having a running partner, um, you know, because we don't always have our best days and it, it's bound to happen that you're going to have one of those days where you just can't pull through. And if you were by yourself, you know, you'd stop. Um, and, I had one of those days one, today, Allie. I know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. You know, and, and there are times where that happens or, you know, you'd cut yourself some slack. And when you have a running partner, they just, it's not that they refuse to let you quit, but they're there for you in those moments. And them just being there stride for stride makes all the difference. And that encouragement is what pulls you through from time to time. I, you know, I also say running by yourself is, is powerful as well, just because you, you're the only person that knows what you're doing that day. So, um, you know, if Strava wasn't there and if, you know, the social media post didn't follow afterwards, who are you letting down if you stop, you know, when you're by yourself? Um, and the answer is you. But with having a running partner or two, you just have that accountability piece. And I really like that as far as the long run went. Yeah, I agree. I think there's a I, I completely agree with this, that there really is a, a nice place for both, because like you said, yeah. like. I, the, the 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 positive aspects of having running partners 
you know, it, it really doesn't even need to be explained, right? It is pretty obvious, you know, because we've all been there. We've <laughs> all been on teams and we've all been in competitive situations or we've had, you know, we're in a marriage where you have a down day, but the other person picks you up. And you know, we've all been in those instances. But, you know, that the power that comes from doing something solo is also nice to know that you can, you know, when, when things get tough, that you can figure it out is a skill as opposed to something that's just naturally inborn that needs to be cultivated. So I agree with you that I think there is a place for both. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, um, truth be told, in this last marathon, you know, on Sunday, I was running with my running partner, Tom, and we made it through 18 solid miles together. And I just knew I had more in the tank and I started to pull away and I gave him one last shout out and said, you know, come on, buddy, I know you have it in you, but I didn't turn around and I didn't look back. And, um, you know, a part of you feels bad because, you know, there was your training partner that was there for you. But I knew if I turned around and looked back, I would feel bad. And at the end of the race, um, you know, we gave a big hug and congratulatory, you know, BQ celebration. And he said, I'm glad you didn't look back. You went for it. And that's what you were here to do. And I was so excited for you. So, you know, we're there for each other, whether we can pull through that day or not. And, you know, that that means a lot. But those last eight miles were solo. And those are some of the toughest miles. And those are the ones where you can't give up. So I'm grateful that I had some solo runs in there that were, um, you know, what prepared me for what I had to do on Sunday. So when things got tough in those final eight miles, what was your inner, inner monologue? Like, what exactly was the toughness and how did you combat it? So, I mean, I, I had my nutrition pretty well on point. Um, I felt my pace slow just, just a little bit in um, 18 through 20. And um, I knew I was right around eight minutes. Um, I was just coming down the home stretch of those last six miles. And, you know, you can just feel that, you know, your body has really used up everything that it has. And, um, you know, as, as I mentioned earlier in this podcast, that's where the race begins. And it's so easy to slide off pace. And I have not grasped the, um, you know, in four marathons, the ideal way to hold on to those late miles. Um, I know that I have extended them in my training and gotten myself to the point where, you know, my first marathon 18 is where I felt like I bogged down. You know, the next time I ran, it was 20 and now 22 after that. So, in those last few miles, I feel like it's inevitable that you're going to get to a point where it just really sucks, uh, to be honest with you. And you have to embrace <laughs> that suck. Um, right. And, right. you know, just telling yourself over and over that you can do this and there is a finish line and you didn't get up every day at four o'clock in the morning and you didn't talk about how you could do this for you not to. So, um, it was just, it was never going to happen to me. I was never going to not finish that race. It just wasn't a, it wasn't something that I was envisioning. And, um, I think one of the things that always helps me, I don't know how many of you listening have ever, you know, gotten to the end of that marathon and you just see how people start to walk at that point and you see how people start to drop off. 
And I remember my husband, Darren, yelling over to me, you're still mowing them down. Just keep mowing them down. And what he meant was you are passing all those people who aren't putting one foot in front of the other. They're, they're, they're giving up right now and you're not. And just keep your mind where it is. And I know that you have it in there. Just keep it where it is and just stay the course. And he said, you will be fine when you get to the end of this. So just, you know, he, I didn't even have to look at him or know what, you know, he was going to say next. He just knew that it was in there. And so did I. So I really just truly feel that believing and seeing and envisioning yourself doing what you want to do is so powerful. So you hit basically eight minute mile pace right on the number for this marathon, right? Because eight minute mile pace is 330. You hit that by one second off. So how much do you, or how often I should say, do you, did you look at your watch to judge your pace versus running by feel? Um, so I would say throughout this, the majority of the race, just because I was with a running partner and we were kind of cognizant of, you know, each mile ticking away, um, they had a water station at each mile and they were actually doing a contest to see who had the best water station you know, with those handing out things, um, you, you're very well aware of your mile markers. So as they ticked off, we paid attention to, you know, where we were. Um, actually my first, the first half we ran in like 143. So I knew that we were well under my marathon pace that I had set in my mind, like a 755. Um, we actually ran at a 748 for that first half. and. We kind of paid attention to it there, but in those last miles, knowing that I had banked a lot of time and knowing that I was slowing, I tried not to even look at my watch. And the reason for that was if I saw a time that I knew was slower than what I wanted, I didn't want the negativity to slip in there. Um, I don't oh. know if you know, you know what I'm saying. I didn't want to look at it. I wanted to know that by feel I was pushing as hard as I could and as, and I was giving what I had and I, I refused to really um, pay attention to the pace at that point. I, I will tell you, I looked um, and I wasn't exactly impressed by my times after the fact. Um, you know what I mean? Just because, you know, I knew what I did through those first 20 and, and in the last six, I fell off a little bit, but, um, in the grand scheme of things, the work that I had put in, in the beginning and, um, what I was able to accomplish overall should have been what I highlighted in the race. And, you know, you're going to have those low points. But if you choose to focus on, you know, what you did overall, I don't even think those last few miles really mattered in my perspective. Uh, they're obviously what I'm going to change for the next time so that I can make myself better. That's my area of change. But I didn't want to let the negativity creep in and be like, oh, no, and the panic set in because, you know, then you're just giving yourself a reason to to let the wheels fall off. And I didn't want that to happen. So today is the day where a lot of people registered for Boston. Were you able to do that today? So my registration day is September 13th, which is Friday. Um, my time is right, so, 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 so two days away for people second. who are listening to this. Yeah. So, yeah. 
Okay. All right. So obviously that's exciting. I can't wait for you to do that. That's, that's, I know. I mean, what, what a hallmark moment considering all the work you put in. <laughs> With that in mind, and this is my last question to you, a lot of people are in a very similar situation that you've been in where they were really active, maybe high school and college. You were a field hockey player, again, high school and college. And then they're working their way. They're trying to get that BQ. They're very, very close, right? I mean, shoot, you got it three years in a row, but weren't able to register <laughs> because of the, the, the drifting time. And with that being said, what advice would you give to other people that are, are kind of experiencing similar situations that you have in the past and are hoping for a similar result that you have now achieved? The advice I'd give them would be that, you know, there's going to be obstacles. There's always going to be obstacles in life that stand in your way. If I told you that it was a linear journey, I'd be lying to you. Um, if you followed anything on Instagram, I was very honest with the fact that I'd been injured twice in, um, in all of this. And I had stress fractures in both of my legs um, for two of the different marathons. And, you know, I was pushing my body to the point that maybe, you know, it wasn't ready for. And, um, you know, I, I have talked before about that power and purpose of patience. And, and, you know, I had to be patient with my body to get to where I was. I was actually registered to run the shamrock race in March with that. My husband also ran and uh, poor guy, I signed him up. I signed myself up. I had other friends coming and we sort of dropped off by fly like flies because, you know, one got hurt and another one had a death in the family and he was the only one left running. But I pulled myself out of that race because I just wasn't 100%. And as hard as that is to do, with competitive nature, you have to understand that it's just not your time. And that is a very tough pill to swallow, but it's one that I've learned in getting older. And, um, you know, I always knew that I would just continue on and do the best that I could. Um, but I more recently started to just write out my intentions and be very intentional with my goals. So I have a little bit of a vision board hanging above my bed. It's, it's sort of like a dry erase board. Um, and I wrote on it in the middle of the summer, I am a Boston qualifier. And I wrote it out and kind of called my shot. And um, I did that for myself. And I did that so that I could say that I had that goal in mind and I didn't know what the date was going to be that that came to fruition, but there's really no expiration date on your goals. So, um, it's been hanging there and I can't wait to change it and maybe even paste a big old unicorn on that same dry erase board. But, um, you know, I just became very intentional and, and understood that there was patience involved in that. Allie, thank you so much for coming on this show. I, I was blown away by this conversation. And normally I wouldn't say this during the conversation. I'll say it in the intro and outro, but I really want to express how I feel right now. This was remarkable. 
I feel like I'm better oh. for having talked to you. So thank you so much for coming on the show and good luck with everything. And congratulations on finally getting that goal that you had set out, uh, you know, a couple of years ago to, to achieve. I totally appreciate you having me on. And I, <laughs> I'm very humbled. I didn't expect this, but uh, I, I appreciate you talking with me and I hope this helps other people. I'm sure it will. Thank you. Thanks again. All right. Thank you. Allie, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was so enjoyable. If you've listened, I said in the intro, it's been a long time coming and hopefully you could see why. Also, shout out to our sponsors today, Tune Up CBD and Megaton Coffee. I just literally this, this evening sprained my right ankle in the backyard. And, you know, when I came into the house, I took out the extra strength Tune Up CBD salve and I dumped it not dumped it. I spread it using my hands all over my ankle. And, you know, I think it's going to work. It's already working pretty well when it comes to ankles. I'm a veteran, dozens of sprains, a broken ankle and an ankle reconstructive surgery. So I know how this is supposed to feel and I can already tell it's working. So thank you. Tune up CBD. Also make it some coffee. Thank you, Allie. And thank you to everybody who listens, rates, reviews, and shares this podcast. I couldn't do without you. And that's the truth. So thank you so much for listening and happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of InPost Media. Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing, amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry.